Thanks, John, for reading for us. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Our Father and Lord, we are ever dependent on you for everything, no less for these moments before us now, before your word. We need your word, O God. Even if we don't know it, even if we don't believe it, we really do need your word. And so would you, by your grace and by your spirit, invade our hearts, invade our minds, invade what we believe is right and replace it with what you say is right. Help us, O God, to see your word as life and as true. Help us to fight the fight to believe that, even as we are struggling perhaps this day. Help me, O God, to preach your word. Give me your grace. All of us, O Lord, need to hear from you and not man. So help us to hear that, we pray. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Today we're in Galatians 2, as John read for us. We're continuing our sermon series in the book of Galatians. Galatians, a letter written by a man named Paul to a church in Galatia. And today, as John read for us, we're going to find ourselves in a passage that's a bit heated. It's a little uncomfortable to actually see what's taking place here in Antioch. So as we do that, it's actually going to, as we see this drama unfold, it's actually going to unpack something that's really important for us as a church and for us individually as Christians. And for those who are not Christians, it's important for you as well to hear what God's Word has to say. This morning, we're going to be in Galatians 2. If you're not there already, please grab a Bible, uh, turn to Galatians 2. We're going to be in verses 11 to 21. As you consider the world in which we live in, and as we consider how the world thinks about love, there's a lot of writings and movies and opinions and letters written about love and what it means to love and what it takes to maintain love. If you grew up in the 90s like me, you knew of a song that played on repeat on the radio that asked the question, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more, right? And you take that lyric and you can almost superimpose it into how we think about love today, right? What is love? Whatever it is, just don't hurt me, baby. Don't hurt me no more. Don't do it. If there's any lyric that can help us to see how we see love, it be that, at least a part of it. It's usually not the kind of love that may hurt us that we pursue, the kind that is fierce, desiring good for us, even if it means that we are in pain as we grow. It usually is not the kind that may hurt us. The love that we desire today for ourselves, and it's understandable, is the kind of love that doesn't rock the boat or doesn't call us out or doesn't put us on blast or our lives or our hearts on blast. The love of today wants the kind of love that says, let me be me, let me think how I want, live how I want, think about all kinds of things the way that I want to think and live on our own independently. In fact, today, you and I in the world that we live in, we fall in and out of relationships, whether romantic or not, based on how deep a person goes into you know, touching that nerve, that thing that exposes something about us that we don't want anybody to know, we don't even want to know ourselves. We will fall in and out of relationships when we are pushed, when we are challenged to change or to think about something differently. But what about Jesus? When you think about Jesus and how he has come into the world, what you saw in him is much like what a surgeon does to wound before the surgeon heals, right? There's going to be a bit of pain, but it's for your good. 
so that we won't waste away or wither away because of our illness and our, our sickness. He touches on things that reveals the depths of emptiness in our souls. He exposes the things that, again, we don't want to see, and we definitely don't want others to see that about us. But Jesus comes into the world, and he doesn't do this with condemnation in his voice or with anger in his eyes, saying, clean yourself up or else. That's not the posture that Jesus Christ comes with. No, Jesus exposes sin and how you and I think to make us realize that we live in the context of a very broken world and our own lives and hearts are very broken themselves. And to be honest, it'd be a lot easier to avoid this. And if Jesus is coming around the corner to avoid him altogether because he's going to surface all of these things about us. But he comes into your story and mine in love to heal and to rescue, and to restore and redeem us in love. That's what he does. And within the church both today and back during the time when Galatians was written by Paul, Jesus actually uses not only the relationship that we have with him and God's word, he actually uses one another to be able to go in deeper with one another's lives and to show us where we are believing and not believing. He uses conversations between people like you and me in the church to be able to grow in love for him and and to know the gospel for our good. And in our passage today, Paul is about to have one of the hardest conversations that he's ever had before with someone about something that couldn't be more important. It's infinitely important. And while this word that Paul has is a hard word, it's one that is said in love. And as you see this scene play out, You're not only going to see the drama of this uncomfortable situation between two Christians, but you're also going to see one of the most important doctrines unpacked in the process. It's the doctrine of justification. If you've been around church or are not familiar with that word, we'll unpack what that means. But this this scripture shows us this conflict, but in doing so also shows us the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification answers the question, how am I supposed to be made right with God if I'm a sinner, right? If God is holy and I'm not, in fact, I'm a sinner, what's what's bridging the gap? What's filling in the gap between God's holiness and my sinfulness? And what's going to make me righteous before God? What's going to satisfy God? What's going to make me righteous and Pleasing before God. Is there something there for me? Martin Luther, who launched what became known as the Protestant Reformation, says this of justification. Justification is the issue on which the church stands or which the church falls. Right? This doctrine is the, the doctrine on which the church stands or whether it falls. Luther loved what Galatians had to say about the doctrine of justification so much that he said, Galatians is my epistle. I betrothed it to myself. It is my wife. That's how he speaks of this. You know you're a biblical nerd when you say you loved a book of the Bible so much that you said you'd marry it. Right? That's the kind of love that... Paul has for this book and this doctrine. It meant everything to him. It was dear to his faith and to his life. And so as we jump into Galatians 2, 11 to 21, it's a few verses, and I want to give us three headings to understand better of what's happening in, this scene, in these scenes. The first of those three headings is a life that betrays belief. A life that betrays belief, verses 11 to 14. 
Let's read from verse 11. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the, by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? If you know some of the background of where this text is and who some of the characters are, it's kind of a shocking passage to read, isn't it? Why is it shocking? Because what you see happen in this text is a church fight breaks out, what seems to be during a potluck dinner on a Sunday night. Right? This church fight breaks out in, in, in the hall during a potluck dinner, and who is in the middle of the scuffle? Essentially, the two pillars of the church, two apostles, Paul and Peter. Right? These are the guys that we're following and we're building this, this church upon. Right? They're the ones who has, have taken the charge from Jesus and is establishing and building up his church. And this is completely unexpected, not just because of their titles and who they are. It's not just that. But in the verses that we preached a, few, a couple of weeks ago, we said that Peter actually gave Paul the right hand of fellowship, saying that, Paul, you and I were on the same team. Paul, you and I believe the same gospel. Paul, you and I are actually denying and refuting false gospels. You've got to remember, Peter is not just any apostle. Peter is the highest authority established in the church by Christ himself. Peter walked with Jesus while he was on the earth. So you'd expect when Peter comes to town, you would, you would throw a party, you would, you would pop open a bottle of champagne, pull out all the stops, put a garland over his neck. Instead, what you get from Paul is, and then I opposed him to his face. Right? It's like Peter comes into Antioch and just gets punched, wailed on in the face by Paul. Welcome to Antioch, Peter. We're glad to have you. That's, that's the welcome that the apostle Peter receives as he comes into town. And it shows us that in God's economy, it does not matter who you are. There is no partiality with God. Even if you're the top dog, you've got letters before and after your name and are even a leader of the Christian movement in the first century. No one, none of us are above the gospel. So, what is it that's got Paul so furious that he's opposing Peter to his face? What is the issue that Paul had with Peter here? If you look, it's, it's sort of plain as day, right? It's the issue of hypocrisy. Because what you see in this text is that Peter is going to act one way with, when, when he's with the Gentile Christians, and he's actually going to act another way when he's with the Jewish Christians. Right? When he's with the Gentile Christians, he, he sits at the table with them, has a meal with them, has a laugh with them, pork sandwiches all day, every day for Peter. He's all in, right? Until he's with the Jewish Christians, and they come and open the doors into the hall. And all of a sudden, his opinion shifts and says, pork sandwiches? Are you kidding me? How vile. I would never even want that taste on my lips. How vile. Because what are some of the Jewish Christians who have come out of the culture and religion of 
Judaism, the ceremonial laws that have come with it, what are they saying? The same religion, mind you, that Peter is coming from, the same group of people that Peter is actually trying to reach with the gospel. Right? He's come out of this and he's trying to give them the gospel. Some of these folks who are coming from Judaism, holding on to the ceremonial laws, are spouting a false gospel that says, and we've said this over and again, over again in these weeks, that salvation is through Jesus Christ plus blank. You can fill it in there, right? And what are they filling it in with here? They're saying you need Jesus, but you need Jesus plus something else. And you'll see in different places they say different things. They are called the circumcision party. And in one sentence, in one instance they come and they say Gentile Christians, to be really in on this Christian thing, to be sort of top tier, first class, extra legroom kind of Christians, you've got to go under the knife, right? You've got to go under the knife of circumcision. But the Gentiles think about it and say, um, thanks for the advice, but actually circumcision does not sound all that fun. So if it's okay with you, we'll opt out of that. Thanks for inviting us to your circumcision party, right? They say, no thanks. We're, we're out, we're opting out, if you're good with that. And so, as they do this, as we come into Galatians 2, the scene is no longer about circumcision. It's not plus circumcision. The issue here is the menu. Right? What are they eating and who are they eating it with? Peter can play both sides, right? There's, there's a new menu on the, on, the, on the table, and when the Gentile Christians are in one room and the Jewish Christians are in another, he can play both sides just fine. But, just fine. but what happens when the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians come together into the same room, when they both converge together at a potluck on a Sunday night together? What happens then? It's what he does in verse 12. This is what it says. For before certain men came from James, that is, those who were spouting a false gospel, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The moment comes, Jews and Gentiles converge, and Peter moves from this side of the church hall over to this side of the church hall. He goes from this table to this table, acting like he never was here, doesn't really know the people here, has never shared table fellowship with them here. And here's the surprising part of the scene, right? You've got two groups of people now in the Christian church converging. And the surprising part of this scene is that if anybody would be convinced that this is not right, it should be Peter. If anyone had an experience and conviction of this scene not being right, it would be Peter. Why? Why would it be Peter? Uh, because if you flip back to Acts 10, God gives Peter a vision three times over that shows Peter that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. No distinction. That there is nothing unclean that God calls and deems clean. You can't call it clean. God himself has called it clean. Don't call it common. Don't call it unclean. And there in the vision, he's speaking of dietary laws. There's a sheet that comes out and all kinds of animals are on it. And God says, eat and feast. There's nothing unclean there. And Peter then speaks later to a man named Cornelius about this. Right? What does he say to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 28? He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is. Right? How unlawful it is according to their religious tradition 
to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's the, that's the message. That's the vision. That's what, that's what Peter actually took from that. And then he preaches the gospel to them, and they believe it, and he baptizes them. It's the same Peter who in Acts 15, before the Jerusalem council, when this topic of circumcision comes up, this is what Peter says there. God makes no distinction between us and them. Therefore, why are you putting God to the test? God's cleansed both of our hearts by faith. Why are you putting a yoke on the neck of disciples that neither our forefathers nor we have been able to bear? But we, Peter says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Right? Two groups of people believing the same thing. You see all of this. You see Peter's history. You see how how Christ has met him, how God has revealed himself even through these kinds of things like a vision. And you look at the scene and you just wonder, Peter, what's happening, bud? Apostle Peter, what's happening? You're supposed to be a spiritual father to this movement. What's happened? What are you doing now in Antioch? Because for Peter, it wasn't for lack of belief. Like we said, Peter literally walked with Jesus. He saw his footsteps. He, He watched his life. He saw the miracles. He witnessed the crucifixion. It wasn't for lack of conviction or experience for Peter. Because Peter got the vision and proclaimed the truth when opposed before. What has happened here? And Paul's accusation against Peter is that, brother, you are out of step with the gospel. That's that's about the worst indictment you can ever get. To be out of step with the gospel, Jesus' gospel. Peter, you're out of step with the gospel. So what has happened to Peter? Time has passed. Pressures mount, and Peter caves. And hear this. It was good for me even to hear this again This week, Uh, what Peter is doing here, struggling with, may be categorized in two ways, right? Peter has a formal theology, right? What he believes and is convinced of, and he has a functional theology, how he actually lives it out in reality. You hear that? There's there's a formal theology that he's convinced of, has a conviction on, and he believes, but there's a functional theology, that's what he actually lives out. And what's happening here is Peter is betraying his belief through his own behavior, right? There is a gap between what he confesses, what he says as his creed, and what he does in conduct. There's a gap. I say this, I do that. I talk the talk, but I'm not going to walk it. And that's what Peter is doing here. And here's a warning for us, Seven Mile Road. Hear this warning to you and to me from God's word. Your behavior can undermine your belief. Your behavior can undermine your belief. It is possible for Christians to believe the gospel in their hearts and even confess it with their lips and yet deny it entirely with their lives. Right? You can say as much as you want. You may even believe it in your heart. But your life and your conduct and your behavior and your actions can deny it completely. There's lots of implications on how this might work out. But here's one account I heard from a preacher this week, a Christian thinker, a theologian, that I think is especially relevant to the context and the cultural undertones of what's happening here in Galatians 2. A man named Russell Moore recounts some early childhood experience that he had. 
Moore says, one of my earliest memories is when a Sunday school teacher was chasing me around the Sunday school room one morning for putting a coin in my mouth. That's filthy, she said. You don't know if a colored man may have held that. And Moore continues to say, it may just have been my imagination playing tricks on me, but it seems as though she followed that by saying, all right, children, let's sing. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. You hear that, and you can see it when someone else does it, right? You see the disconnect. Seven Mile Road, our life can deny our doctrine, and we may not even see it. We may not even realize it. And here is an account in Galatians where someone sees it, and it's a good brother and a fellow peer. Peter here was reverting to something he abandoned, something he chalked away to nothing. He, he no longer believed in it. He no, no longer based his life on it. He was trying to find acceptance and righteousness before God and man from something other than Jesus. Listen, I know we've said it, you know, pork and circumcision and clean and unclean foods may not be the thing that we're, you know, sort of staying up at night about. It may not be something that we're constantly thinking about, but this kind of Jesus plus something runs deep in you and I, runs deep in human nature. People's, people always, I always want to add something that I do or that we do or something that we are to what God has done and we tend to look down on those who aren't that thing, right? We expect something of us and to add on to what Christ has done and if that person is not doing that thing, we expect them to do it as well. Otherwise, we think we're, we're higher than them. There's a, there's a complex that we have where they're less and we're higher. We can all find our way, right, into resting in some kind of an inferior righteousness of our own. It could be righteousness that comes from perhaps what you do for a living. It could be righteousness that comes from what kind of family or culture or race you're from. Righteousness that comes from how much you know the Bible perhaps more than others. Righteousness that comes from how merciful you are more than others or how you parent your children, or love your spouse so well, or how holy you think you are, or how you are not like those who think they're so holy. How you manage your time, or your money, or your schedule, whether you're politically left, center, or right, what your prayer life and church involvement looks like. How many times are you going to GCM? How many times are you coming to Sunday service or serving in, in some ministry? How good you are at being social and hospitable, or perhaps how you and I look down on people who have the right job that we would want, or have the right skills, or the right family. Though we may believe the right things up in our heads, on the ground, when it comes down to you know, feet on the ground life, do we engage with one another? In, in community, Right, The one another's. Do we engage at this level with one another where our doctrine actually matches our, our, our conduct? Where there is no gap between the two? 
Right? Listen, we, you and I, you know, I love this church. I love you so much. And even as Benu was sharing and as we called new members, I'm so thankful for the way that God has brought us who are different together here. It's not our work. It's the work of God. And as God does that, would you even ask yourself the question this day? We may sit side by side together in the pews, but would we sit by one another over a meal? Really befriend one another. Invite someone over to our home that doesn't look like us or think like us or behave like us or have the same background as us. Peter here is actually acting in this way, not just out of a vacuum. He's acting hypocritically because he's fearful. He's afraid. What's he afraid of? He's afraid of the circumcision party and how they would react if he stayed on this side of the hall at this table and dined with them. He's afraid of how the reaction would be and he's scared of the suffering and the ostracizing that might happen as a result. Though he believes one thing and he does, he acts another way. Peter here is doing something called fearing man more than fearing God. Peter is thinking about the opinion of man more than the heavenly father who has created him. And so he plays a role, much like an actor plays a role on a stage. It's like he puts on a mask as soon as the Jewish Christians enter the church hall. Right? When you act hypocritically, when you and I act in hypocritical ways, we are masking our true convictions. And we're playing a part that's actually not our own. Right? When you and I act hypocritically, it's the, the reality is we actually believe one thing, but we're going to put a mask over our faces and play a part that we actually don't believe. That's what hypocrisy is. In fact, the word hypocrisy comes from stage acting and theater acting where you do put a mask on. That's where the word comes from. Right? This kind of acting, it's sort of like the acting that a husband and wife might do when they take off their ring when they're out of town to act like they're single. Right? You feel that? How awful. Right? Being something that you know you're not. And so as we consider that, you feel the hypocrisy, right? But consider even perhaps tonight, there's a, say it's football season and Sunday night football is on tonight. The Eagles are playing the Cowboys. But instead of coming in this morning with Eagles jerseys and hats and shoes and chains and whatever, Eagles apparel that you can find, instead of coming into this church donning eagle's gear, you and I are wearing cowboy's gear. No, that was not the response I expected. If our deacons can come in and squelch that. Right, if we came in with cowboy's gear, you know something's off. We'd be the worst people. Not just because, and listen, I'm not even saying because we were wearing cowboy's gear. That's not the issue. Because there's nothing inherently wrong with that, though, you know. I'm saying this. If we come in to this hall draped in cowboy's gear, we're living in a reality that's not our own conviction. We're living in something in hypocrisy, right? You know how terribly off that would look if we saw a sea of blue instead of beautiful midnight green in this hall. Right? We'd be acting hypocritically. Well, not all of us. I understand that. There's some of you in the crowd I will be sympathetic to, but most of us anyways, right? We get that. And so, that gives you a feel, right? What does it look like to, to be something you're not? To act in a conviction that's not your own conviction. To believe something and do another thing. 
And it's, it's funny, but at the same time, in Galatians, it's tragic. Because here's what happens. It's not just Peter's hypocrisy that leads him to stray and to veer off from the gospel. Pa- Peter's hypocrisy actually spills out and drags other people with it. The people in Antioch, but what's worse, a guy like Barnabas. That's what the scriptures say, that Barnabas himself was led astray because of this hypocrisy. He himself was entering into this hypocrisy himself. Look how far Peter has gone from the gospel. Peter, Paul says, in fact, in verse 14, that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Oh, that you and I would never get that indictment. It's a sobering thought, though, that none of us, no matter how high we climb or how far we advance in this faith of ours, none of us are entirely immune from straying from the truth and veering off the path. When you think you've got it, well, you start to veer off. When you, when you start to depend on yourself, you start to veer off. None of us, no matter how far we get, no matter who we are, are immune from straying off the path. And it's been said before that the best of men are men at best. You and I are made of flesh and blood. You and I, the best of us, are men at best. And yet Peter's stumbling has a peculiar comfort to it, doesn't it? If you think for a moment and you dwell here for a bit, his stumbling, to his dismay, but to our benefit, actually has a peculiar comfort to it. In fact, not just Peter's failures, but the entire lot of failures that we see across the Bible. This is how Martin Luther speaks of it. He says again, Samson, David, and many others celebrated men and women who were full of the Holy Spirit fell into huge sins. Job and Jeremiah cursed the day of their birth. Elijah and Jonah grow tired of life and pray for death. Such errors and sins of the saints are set forth in order that those who are troubled and desperate may find comfort and that those who are proud may be afraid. No man has ever fallen so grievously that he could not have stood up again. On the other hand, no one has such a sure footing that he cannot fall. If Peter fell, I too may fall. But if he stood up again, so can I. None of us are immune. And if we do fall, we too, as we see the life of Peter, can fall and rise again. Because listen, we won't go over all the history, but isn't this Peter's rap sheet? I mean, this isn't the first time that this has happened. Right? Walk on water, he's doing it, looks down and away from the face of Jesus, and what happens? He starts sinking. Jesus, I will love you, even though everyone else may forsake you, I'm with you. What happens? A little servant girl comes over, and like that, three times he denies him. How many other ways, right, where he is, he is, he's even rebuked by Jesus Christ himself for trying to keep him from going to the cross. Peter, time and time again, comes in the way of himself. He stumbles over himself. He falls, and then he keeps rising. And here we see the church is established. He's a preacher, and he's, he's doing the work of God. Churches are being established. Believers are coming, and yet he's struggling to believe himself. It's often not the great and heroic deeds of men and women, both in Christian history, the Bible, and among us, that brings much comfort. It's actually often the the church and its bruises and its failures that bring us comfort. Because in those, 
we can see that when we fall and when we fail, Christ restores and people stand again even after a past that is marred. So first we see in the life of Peter a life that betrays belief. We'll move through the next two headings quickly. The second thing we see is a life that's all in with self. A life that's all in with self, verses 15 to 18. Reading from verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth, and he is speaking. He's directing this towards towards Peter. Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Seven Mile Road, hear this. New news to some of us, old news to others, but for every single one of us, you and I could not drill this truth into our heads enough We cannot bash our heads in enough with this truth until we receive it and it's deeply planted into our hearts. Hear this. No one is justified by works of the law, by works of the flesh. No one ever is justified by merit, accomplishments, piety, gifts of the Spirit, or even holiness. Even your holiness on your best day will never, ever justify you. God does not love us because we were once lovable. Because God saw us and he said, there's something in you. And I want you. No, he said, there's nothing in you. In fact, you're dead. You're completely unlovable. No, it's while we were still sinners. Completely unlovable. Children of wrath, Ephesians says. Those who were rebellious to God. It was for those kinds of people, you and I, that Christ came into the world to die for the ungodly, which is all of us. That's who we share communion with. That's who we sit beside. The ungodly who Christ saw and made godly through Jesus Christ. Because what the Jews here are trying to argue is that Yes, you know, they would say with us, you need Jesus, but we need something else. Jesus is not enough. You've still got to follow the Mosaic law. You've still got to maintain it. You've got to still look at that and say, yes, I've got Jesus, but I can't forget the law. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Why, why would I ever try to just bank my life on the life of another? I've got to follow it myself. A law that consists of over 600 laws to follow, and to maintain. But here's the thing about these laws. Kids, if, if you're here and, and you're, you're taking a test or you have some kind of exam or, or something coming up, imagine that question, or the, the test have, has a thousand questions on it that you have to answer, right? You can imagine the sorrow that you feel even going in to take the test, right? A thousand questions, but here's the thing. There's only two grades possible, an A or an F, right? You either pass or you fail. How do you get an A? You get everything right. 1,000 questions to the T exactly how you're supposed to answer it and live it. To get an F, what do you do? Miss one. Just one dot. Just one cross. One grammar mistake. 
And this, what the law requires, is no just academic or intellectual assent or test. This is a spiritual one where our own flesh and our own sin are involved. Imagine what it takes to to live up to over 600 laws every day, moment by moment, to maintain it, to, to do it again and again for years, perhaps 80 years of your life. And if you miss it one time, you are done. You'll never pass that test. And guess what? You were never meant to pass the test. Let that free you, right? You were never meant to pass that test. The law is to show us our sin. And you look at this list of laws. You look at all that God requires. And it's to show us that we could never live rightly. Never follow God's standard to be acceptable to Him. So, we ask the question then. If we're not justified through the law, then what justifies us? Where can you and I, Christian and non-Christian, if you are here... What will make us right before God? What justifies us? Where can we ever find hope to be made right before an almighty God? I want to just read for you how the Heidelberg Catechism answers this question when it asks, how can one be made righteous before God? And as you hear this, take these words in, make them your own, because this is what's true of your endeavors and mine in pursuing a holy God So it asks, how can one be righteous before God? It answers, only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that though my conscience accuses me that I have grossly transgressed all the commands of God and kept none of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God without any merit of my own, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Even so, as if I never had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I have fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ hath accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with just a believing heart." Friends, there is no sweeter belief or truth that you and I can believe today that we could hear of our condition, but that the call to be righteous before God is not a call to climb a ladder to get to God, to live perfectly, to exhaust yourself to live because you won't, to repeated failures that devastate you in your attempts because you constantly fail. The only and singular call to be righteous before a holy God is a call to put all of your faith and all of your hope in Jesus Christ who has become for you righteous. He has become righteousness for you. When he calls you to be righteous, he's not saying, go, be righteous. He's saying, look, Jesus did it for you. You are righteous in him. It's like the account of a a late preacher I heard of this past week named Donald Barnhouse. He once went to go guest preach at a church. And before he went up to preach, there was a woman who stood up with good intentions and sang a song before he went to preach. And she sang these words of this old hymn that said, I am satisfied with Jesus. But a question comes to me. As I ponder over his goodness, is he satisfied with me? And the song goes on and on, verse after verse, asking this question. In all that I do, is Jesus satisfied with me? Never resolving it. Never giving an answer. And Barnhouse stands up. He walks over to the woman 
looks her in the face and says, yes, yes, he is. Is he satisfied with you? Is he satisfied with Jesus? Then he's satisfied with you. And he doesn't just put you at a distance. He brings you into his family. And you are made his son and daughter. Is he satisfied with you? Yes, he's satisfied with you. Yes, he loves you and approves of you. Sephim al wrote this day, believe that. Believe that when you look at the Father, he does not have a frown on his face. If you are in Christ, he smiles upon you like he smiles upon Jesus Christ himself. Is he satisfied with you? You can say, yes, he's satisfied with me. Even if I'm a failure and I fall and I have a past that I'm embarrassed of, even if I struggle with sin today, am I satisfying to Christ? Am I satisfying to the Father? Yes. Yes, I am. But as Paul argues that we can't save ourselves, only faith in Christ can, he anticipates a question that the Jews would raise. Right? He's trying to think, I know how... They're thinking, I thought the same. He's anticipating a question. Reading from verse 17, here's what Paul says. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. All right. The the next few verses can get a little difficult to navigate through, but here's what some of what Paul is saying. Paul admits, one, yeah, he's a sinner. Just plain, plain as day, I am the chief most of sinners. I am the guy that you looked to and say, yeah, that guy, he's a sinner. Right? But not just that, right? He's trying to think particularly through the eyes of the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians who are saying, it's Jesus plus something. He is sinning in their eyes because they consider the law of Moses to be kept, and he's not keeping it. They think to themselves, it's one thing to accept Christ. It's another thing to abandon the law and see it in the back view mirror. So the rhetorical question for them, from them, and for Peter, who Paul is still addressing, is this. Paul, does this mean that Christ is an agent of sin? You get the logic? Right? The law is to be kept. We believe you still have to keep the law. You're saying don't keep the law. If you don't keep the law, then you're transgressing, you're sinning. Then, Paul, are you saying that when we think of justification in Christ alone, is Jesus himself a trans, uh, an agent of, of sin, of transgression? They ask, are you, Paul, preaching a gospel that promotes us to sin? Is that what you're trying to veer other people off, Paul? And Paul, of course, he hears that and he says, no, of course not. He says, call me a sinner. I get that. You call me a sinner. In your eyes, if I'm a sinner, that's fine. You're speaking more truth than than lies there. But he says, Jesus is not an agent towards sin for anybody. Why? Because Paul's argument is that you'll see that Christ does not make us sinners by freeing us from the law. Does that make sense? The argument he's trying to get them to understand is, just because Christ has Remove the law keeping for salvation. Remove the law from perfect obedience. Just because he's removed that and we don't follow it doesn't mean that he has now promoted us into sin as as a means to keep our justification. We're not believing in the law to keep 
justified. When he says, for example, in the next verse, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What is he saying here? What is he talking about? What wall? Right? He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, am I proving myself to be a transgressor? Paul is saying this. Think of Paul's story. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew the law back and front. He was taught by the greatest among them. He built his life and his ministry and his whole existence on building up this religion by laying brick after brick of a wall that displayed God's requirement and his obedience through the law. But when this Paul who tried to build this wall, when this Paul who even tried to kill and did kill Christians, when Jesus came into his life, what happened? When Jesus comes into the world, he lives and dies for that wall that Paul built up to be torn down. You get that? The wall that Paul was building up, Jesus Christ came into the world to tear down. And now that Paul has met Jesus, Paul's ministry is to tear down that wall and to preach the gospel. That salvation comes through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. That's it. And so, Paul is working now to tear down that wall. But a question comes, right? What if someone comes back up, grabs the bricks, and starts building up that wall again? What happens if that happens, if the wall is rebuilt? Well, you look back, and that's exactly what Peter's doing. That's what Peter's doing. That's what those who are calling for Jesus plus something else, that's what they're doing. And Paul says to rebuild what Christ himself tore down, that is the actual transgression. That's the actual awful sin and transgression to build back up what Christ cave came to actually destroy by his own body. And listen, this... This entire section is repeat, right? Things are on repeat. And I think part of the reason is that Paul wants you and I and, and Peter and those in Antioch to get and to drill into our heads, to remind us of this. He's trying to convince them of this truth, that a life that's all in with self, building up a spiritual resume does nothing but tear down what Christ came to destroy. You hear that? Why is he repeating this? Why is he saying it in 50 different ways? He's saying that if you try to live your life on your own self, on your own merits, you're tearing down what Christ came to actually destroy. Here's the last point and we're done. Verses 19 to 21, the third point, shows us the alternative way to believe and live. Right? If you ask, how then can we be justified? These verses show us three, a life that's all in with Christ. Reading from verse 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I'll read that again. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. We've already said that the purpose of the law reveals our inability to actually keep it. Right? You look at it and you say, I can't do it. It reveals how unable we are. The law itself, it condemns us. Right? You look at it and you, you are condemned by it. But what's more? When Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law and died for us, the demands of the law were actually entirely satisfied in Christ. 
Right? That's what happened. When Christ comes, he fulfills it, dies to it. All of the requirements are satisfied in Christ. Meaning what? For, for you and me, what does that mean? If we're in Christ, you and I are dead to the law. That's what Paul is saying. You and I, as Christ died and has accomplished all that the law has required, you and I are dead to the law. We're no longer under its condemnation. It has no power over us. Paul, don't get me wrong, is not saying, so disregard everything that you read in these scriptures. He's not saying go and live however you want, whatever wayward life you want, because you see in the scriptures, in the letters that Paul himself has written, he warns us against pursuing those things that would destroy us, those things that are evil and sinful. He's not calling us to a life of lawlessness. Paul means here that Jesus' death means that he died to the law as a way of being saved. He's no longer looking at his life and banking his salvation on how he has lived. And hear me, if you feel condemned over something today, if you feel weighed down by your sin, if you feel like if someone knew what happened, if someone knew what I did, I myself am ashamed and I feel condemned by the law. If you fear that God doesn't hear you, if you fear that God doesn't care for you, then you have forgotten that you are dead to the law if you are in Christ. If you feel that condemnation, I'm not talking about righteous, uh, the righteous weight of sin that we should feel. I'm talking condemnation where you have no hope, where God has left you and he doesn't want to hear you. He wants nothing to do with you anymore. You've forgotten that you and I are dead to the law if we are in Christ. It cannot harm you. In fact, here's how closely linked the death of Christ on the cross is to us. Here's how closely linked that cross on Calvary is linked to us. Reading from verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Uh, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When you look at the cross of Christ, when you look at that bloody scene of the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus is nailed to that tree. Your sins and your debts, past, present, and future, are nailed to that tree. And you know what else? You, you are nailed to that tree. You are crucified with Christ. When you look at the cross of Calvary, the crucifixion of Jesus is not just some historical account that explains our theology in a dry way. It's not just some event that happened to Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ crucified is not only the story of Christ in history, it's your story. It's your very story. We are one in Christ. Luther says we are cemented with him, inseparable from him forever. His story, the story of the cross, an empty tomb, is our story. Our sin, dead. Our death, it dies. Our resurrection, certain. Righteousness, ours. Because all that Christ is on that cross has been transferred to us. In being crucified, we are dead. But listen, Seven Mount Road, we're not just dead in 
done with. Paul continues to say that we are alive. We are alive, dead to self. Yes, not proving ourselves to others and to God. Dead to the power of sin to control us. Dead to the law. But what's more, we are alive to God. There is a new I that is not about just myself or my ambitions. This new life I have in Christ is by God, through God, and for God. And so Paul, as he closes this passage and closes this section, wants to give us just one more reminder, right? In case Peter and the Jews and we, you and I, haven't gotten it yet, he wants to give us just one more reminder of what he's saying. Here's what he says in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If my righteousness comes through law-keeping, then why did Jesus come? Then why did Jesus shed his blood? Paul is saying, listen, Jewish Christians who are purporting a false gospel, you all seem so concerned with the honor of Christ, but when you spout your legalism, you nullify the grace that God has given for you. But I, Paul, am taking my stand, I'm putting it in the ground at the foot of the cross, and I do not nullify the grace of God. Christ alone. That's it. What do you expect, Seven Mile Road? What do I expect from all the works that we tend to bring before God in our hands? All the merits, all of the the obedience that we have done. What good is any of it in comparison to the very death of God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ? Do you and I think that our works could do better than Christ's own blood shed? If you and I got justification if we understood the effectual power of the death of Jesus, we would throw all of our ceremonies and all of our vows and all of our works and all of our obedience into the fire where it belongs, into the ash can, as one theologian says. Another theologian says it way better than I can. Hear these words from one J. Gresham Machen. He says this, Christ will do everything or nothing. Earn your salvation if your obedience to the law is perfect, or else trust wholly to Christ's completed work. You cannot do both. You cannot combine merit and grace. If justification, even in slight measure, is through human merit, then Christ died in vain. Said Malrod, Christian and those who are not here, believe this day in Christ for all that you need, everything. For some of you, perhaps you've come into this season of Seven Mile Road in your life, coming out of perhaps an unhealthy and legalistic kind of a a culture, whether it be in the church or in your own heart or how you grew up, that denied its own doctrine of justification through behavior, where you you yourself have denied the reality of God's Son being killed for you, justifying you with your own behavior to keep the law perfectly. And ever since, whatever that did to your heart, Whatever happened in your soul, perhaps your faith and your heart have been knocked off the balance beam, wondering if you belong in a place like this, wondering if you measure up, wondering if there's a God who would accept you. Is there someone, is there a God up there who does accept me in whom I am satisfied and is satisfied in me? The gospel says to you today, if you are in Christ, you are cleansed, you are made righteous, you belong You have Christ, and Christ alone is all that you need. There is a place for you in his family and at the table of God. 
For others of us, perhaps we've wandered from Christ or have never believed at all. And in one sense, we all continually wander. You and I always continue to wander away from Jesus. And we are all in need of returning from self-righteousness to Christ's righteousness on our behalf. So for all of us, you return and rejoice or you repent and rejoice. Whatever you do, look at Jesus Christ. Respond to the gospel. Respond to it and rejoice because this is not a bad ending for us. It's the greatest news in the world that we are restored unto God because of Jesus Christ. If the accusation lays heavy on your heart, if you hear in your ears and in your heart, I don't deserve this. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough for heaven. A perfect and holy God will never accept me. I'm not good enough to to roll with people in a Christian circle. Your response should be, you know what? Yeah, it might be true. You and I never belong with those who are holy, especially a God who is holy. Listen, when the accusation comes into your ear and mine, what we can say is, yes, that's true. Go see Jesus. He is my justification for being a part of the family of God. Nothing else. Christ alone. I'm believing in him through faith by grace extended to me. That, my friends, is justification. Believe it this day and ask God to instill that into your heart now. Let's pray.